0: Well, good morning, Good Shepherd. Um, This morning, we're going to continue our journey through our little uh, inquiry, if you will, into considering how Christians are to think about the news media, especially in a crisis like this, as we've been, the last, I guess, number of weeks now, as we've been seeking to address how to live during this time faithfully, uh, we've We've approached it from a number of angles, and really what I want to do, and what I have been doing the last few weeks, is to address this question of what does it look like for Christians to um, to engage uh, the, the media, and specifically the news media. And this last week, we started into Revelation, Revelation chapter 12, 13, and 14, as a way of, of looking at this issue. And last week, I because Revelation is such a such an unfamiliar uh, territory to, to many of us, and its language, its, its, its symbols, etc., are so unfamiliar. Last week, I tried to sort of set the stage, if you will, as a way of familiarizing us with the, the various symbols. And, uh, and so if you don't have to, but if you're listening to this and you haven't uh, listened to last week's sermon, you may be a little bit lost. So I would encourage you, uh, if you would like, to go ahead and listen to last week's first because I'll be building on, on what I said then. But let me begin by, uh, by talking about the idea of conflict. I don't think there's a single person in the world who, who would look at the world and the way it is and say, you know, everything is as it should be. All of us in some way or another, we look at the world and we realize that something is wrong. In fact, something is profoundly wrong and each of us in our own way are trying to understand the world in a way that, that, that contrasts right and wrong, good and bad. So that in some shape or form, we all agree that the world is a place marked by conflict. By a, by a deep conflict even, and we'll talk about that more. And so, I mean, but I want to ask the question this morning, why do we all see life in that way? Why do we all agree? If there's one thing that we actually all agree on is that there is a conflict. And, and Revelation, this, this specific section of Revelation, speaks of an enduring conflict and even even if we ourselves don't see others as as an enemy or as the enemy often that's how others can see us isn't that true and of course the question is what sort of conflict is this we may all agree that there is a conflict but a conflict in what way over what issues just who are the who is at war and where where are we to draw to draw the battle lines these are incredibly important questions so revelation doesn't just portray a conflict, actually. it portrays a hidden conflict, a deeper conflict I don't know about in your home or in your relationships, but in the Clark home, it's all too common that various arguments, various little conflicts, disagreements, altercations that we have are actually uh, they're actually about something deeper. Sarah and I will be arguing over a particular issue, but underlying that, hidden beneath the surface, are deeper issues. And I can see it's often, in, when, I, when I see my kids argue with each other, there'll be ongoing, ongoing deeper rifts, and those deeper conflicts manifest themselves in particular situations or, 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 or um, arguments. Now, let me give an example of this, not just at an interpersonal level, but actually, at a at a level uh, at an international level, many of you wouldn't have reason to remember this. But it was just over twenty years ago that um, there was a war uh, in uh, in Kosovo. I don't know if you remember the, 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 the Balkan uh, that region, if you know the geography well. But there was um, there was a, a major uh, outbreak out, um, out, uh, well, outbreak outbreak uh, of violence in that city and the region around it, um, and it was it was in Kosovo that you had a, a, a really an intriguing sort of warfare going on. Uh, on the surface, the war seemed to be caused by ethnic conflict and nationalism, right? You had, um, you had uh, uh, different factions that had deep, I mean, deep ethnic um, um, hostilities. And many argue that that was, in fact, that's how the press presented. Uh, the conflict. They presented it as primarily an ethnic battle. Now, in fact, and, and most of the NATO forces that were there trying to bring order to the region, actually, they, they uh, treated it as such. Now, but what, what, what most didn't realize till after the fact, actually, was that below the surface of this supposedly ethnic conflict, below the surface was a hidden world in which a deeper war was being raged. Uh, a war that actually fueled and, and if you will, promulgated the, the ethnic conflict and the political upheaval and the actual outbreak of physical, of physical violence and war. So here's, here's the deeper conflict. This, is, to me, was so fascinating. Kosovo served as a key city along a, uh, a trade route a trade route that ran from East all the way up to Afghanistan, all the way to the West, to the Western, most Western parts of Europe. And this entire trade route had been built around the sale of a single product. And unlike most products, I think of most um, things that you find on your, sh- on your shelves or in, our, in our grocery stores or, or uh, the various places we go at like Amazon, et cetera, unlike most products, the market for this particular product, this particular commodity, actually benefited from the political and economic instability in Kosovo. Does it make sense? So this, the sale uh, of this product was actually thriving on disorder. Usually, economic uh, growth and life require political uh, stability. But this particular uh, product was was thriving. The, the more the more unstable things were, the more chaos there was, the more this product was able to be sold. And so, what was the, what was the product? But you can probably guess. Of course, it was drugs. It was primarily heroin. Albanian Kosovo, listen to this, Albanian Kosovo was the the entry point for over 80% of the heroin that came into Eastern Europe, heroin that would be sold in markets all throughout uh, Western Europe. It was estimated that the narco-trafficking business that ran through Kosovo, um, called, it was called the, that uh, route was actually called the Balkan route, it was estimated that um, there ran through Kosovo a a, a, four, listen to this, a 400 billion dollar a year venture. In fact, the Kosovo Liberation Army, the KLA as it was called, funded its purchases of arms and equipment largely through its involvement in the drug trafficking business. And you maybe remember that the Serbian dictator, dictator's name was Slobodan Milosevic. He had, accomp- he, he, he had accomplished his goal, if you will, of, of establishing complete control in Kosovo. Why? For, was it really ethnic reasons? Was it nationalistic reasons? No. Once he established control, it would have postured him to get a piece, of a major piece of that $400 billion a year. So in the wake of the NATO air campaign this is, this is amazing in the wake of the, the NATO air campaign as we were bombing uh, various regions, uh, and, and then it was a, Milosevic's army was temporarily defeated, one intelligence analyst said this this is this quote quote, "There is already anecdotal evidence that the drug trade is flourishing in Kosovo in full view of international authorities." The bombed-out, unpaved streets of Kosovo are the new home to sleek European sports cars with no license plates. Amazing, isn't it? So again, it's very important to understand that Revelation is actually, especially in these chapters, in chapters 12 through 15, depicting a deeper, hidden conflict a conflict that is crucial for we are to understand, according to John, if we are to understand and rightly see the various institutions in our culture, like government, and of course what we're primarily talking about, media, specifically the news media, if we are to understand those institutions accurately, we're to grasp that there's actually a deeper conflict. And in, in this particular chapter, we're going to look at today, we're going to look at chapter 12, verses 1 through, uh, 1 through 12. Here we see this deeper conflict hidden in the fact that everything is happening, quote-unquote, in heaven. We see it in verses 1, 3, 7, and 10. This notion of everything going on here is in heaven. And last, last week, if you remember, we talked about heaven, that the notion of heaven being symbolic for that which is eternal that which is enduring and lasting, what's what that which is final and forever, that which is most real, most for real, if you will. In fact, you could, you could use the analogy often in, in the press, we'll read about the White House. The White House did this, or in the White House today. And, and the place of the White House is seen as this place, it's a place of final authority. It's a place where what happens there is decisive for and has implications for the rest of the nation. In the same way, when John says in heaven, it's like saying in the White House. It's saying this is the place, this is the place of ultimacy. What happens here is going to have implications for the rest of the cosmos. And so with that understanding of a deeper conflict in mind, I'm going to read these 12 verses and we'll, we'll dive in together. So here now the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 12. J- uh, John says, A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, unquote. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be ca- taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was, str- he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then... Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of the brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe, woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil, the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short the word of the Lord, let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you um, bless our, our uh, time this morning? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, John uh, gives us this morning the beginning of a, of, a, of a vision that depicts a war, a conflict, as I said, a deeper conflict. And it is a conflict, I want to suggest. It's a conflict between life and lies, between life, between all that gives life, that enables flourishing, that enables beauty, that enables justice and peace. It is a war between life and lies, that which deceives, that which is counterfeit and fake. It is a war between life and lies, and it is a war that has won by, the, by two things, the Lamb's blood and the lives of believers. So let me say that again. The war, the war between life and lies is won by the Lamb's blood and the lives of believers. If you look here in these opening verses, you'll see uh, a figure of a woman. A woman, again, remember, it's a figure of a woman. And as I explained last week, that in the ancient world, in the Old Testament, a woman was symbolic of two things, fidelity and fertility, of being loyal or faithful, and also life-giving. And this particular woman, John says, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars, on her head. And so this this notion of of a here's this picture of a woman and she is a source of light, like right? clothed with the sun, the moon, 12 stars. Now, now briefly why 12 stars? Of course 12 in Revelation. As I, I think I mentioned this last week or perhaps it was in the, the Sunday school. 12 is the number of God's people. There are 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. And so this woman is 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 depicted as a life-giving symbol a light-bearing symbol, and she's identified with the people of God, ide- you know, the ideal of the people of God, if you will. And this notion of light, that she is, uh, she is casting or giving light in, in the universe, in a dark world. She is a, a source of light uh, and a source of life. Now, when I say a source of light, that is this, that she is a source of truth of truth. That the people of God ideally are to be a beacon of truth. Not, and listen to this, this is very important, not a convenient truth, not a selective truth, but a costly truth. What is costly truth? Costly truth is truth that is actually inconvenient. Truth marked by two things, humility and hope. See, real truth, or the truth here that is life-giving is a, is a truth that speaks the whole truth about me. It doesn't present myself in a certain way in social media. It doesn't doesn't present myself in a certain way in circumstances, always trying to maneuver, selecting different truths. No, it is a humble, beautiful, disarming, welcoming truth, a costly truth, a confessing truth. And not only a truth that speaks humility, but a truth that speaks hope. This is a woman who gives life And light, her light spreads truth in a world of darkness. Let me ask you, what kind of truth comes from your mouth? We're going to see that primarily. This is a war about truth and lies, as I've mentioned. It is. It is about. It is a war between life, that which is life giving, truth, that which is life giving, and lies. So she's a source of light, but she's also a source of life, and a source of life at great cost. Look at verse 2. It says, she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. More literally, it's the, the, the Greek says, she cried out being in travail and torment. Now, what a picture of God's people. And these, it's so important to understand that these two things, being a source of light, of truth, and being a source of life, go, must go together. When we speak truth and there's no cost to it, when we speak truth and there's no pain, there's no inconvenience, there's no suffering on our part, no one wants to hear that. No one wants to hear that at all. When, when, but we see here a picture of the people of God as a woman who is loyal as a woman who's life-giving, as a source of light, a source of of life. And it's so beautiful how she's pictured here. It's very moving. Uh, Now, I don't know about you, but when I love people, love my wife or my kids, or when I seek to love as a minister, I am always surprised by the cost. I think that I can actually love people without pain, without suffering. And of course, it's so incredibly untrue. The truth is that when we love, when we seek to help others, when we seek to be a source of life, there is going to be immense suffering. It's a, again, it's a very potent picture: a woman in travail, a woman in the in the in the in the the very climax, if you will, of of labor. And the, again, the, the idea is that she is a source of of light, of truth. But also a source of life. she is give, truly giving life. she's giving birth to, so, to a very important child, as we 'll see. And you know what's so beautiful is I see some of your lives in Good Shepherd, it's just a, it's so beautiful to see some of the ways that you are loving one another, that you're loving persons outside the church. Another particular woman uh, who's been working and she's been working with a, 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 a woman younger than she is. And this particular woman is a non-Christian and is going through a number of struggles. And I, I had the, uh, the, the privilege of meeting this young lady uh, a while ago. And she, uh, she, she said, you know, she said, I want you to know, this woman who goes to your church, she said, I want you to know that she has loved me like a mother. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that just beautiful? The, just the idea that we, as, as the people of God idealized, are to be spreading or giving a maternal love. Isn't that beautiful? We are to be a source of light, a source of life. And what, a, what a beautiful thing. Now, this picture of God's people, is, is, it's intended the symbol of a woman, is intended to woo us and say, yeah, isn't that what we want Good Shepherd to be? Just this picture of a woman giving birth, of being a source of light, a source of life. Isn't that what God's people are, in fact, to be? But it's also not there only to woo us, but to warn us. Is that really who we are? Are we really the kind of people who are going to love at great cost especially in this time of crisis, are we intentionally going into harm's way? Are we? Are, are we just simply sort of shoring things up, putting the walls up, making sure that we're safe? Or are, are we actually going out and taking risk? Giving when we're not sure where it's going to come from. See, Christians are the kind of people that when, the, when a house is burning down, everyone else is, everyone else is running out. Christians are those who... Are running in to save, to help, to rescue. Why? Why do they do that? Love. Why do they do that commitment? I can remember when uh, the hurricane in Puerto Rico hit. This is t- late 2017. We were living there, Hurricane Maria. And every, before the, before it hit, in the 48, 72 hours before it hit, everyone, as many people as possible, were trying to leave the island, especially the Americans. And if you were wealthy, you, you left the island to get out. And I can remember uh being being left behind there and i remember um in the weeks that followed as, as as my family stayed and we were we were giving out food and water um and we boy it was a very difficult choice to stay it was um there was nothing uh, glorious about it there was nothing pious about it but we made that difficult decision in fact we we re-evaluated almost two or three days at first because it was so in, in, incredibly difficult but as we handed out food and water, the most, the most common question I got was always, está aquí why are you still here? Why are you still here? See, this woman's a picture of a woman, and she's committed, and she's loving at great cost. So let me ask you, are you living a costly life? During this crisis, let me ask this. Is there really no one worse off than you? Is there really no one worse off than you that you haven't yet given them some sort of help, especially financial help? Now that more than ever, you can take $100, $50, $25, $500, whatever, but something costly to you, a meaningful amount of money that is costly to you, where you're going to go, I'm not sure I can really do that. And you do it and you give, maybe you give it anonymously. You leave her at the doorstep. You, whatever it might be, but you do something as a way of giving to others in the midst of this crisis. And I'm just going to say it: if that's not you, if you're not going to use your the resources God has given you to help those who are in a situation worse off than you, you need to think about who you are. Because so I think your Christianity is fake. I really do. I think you're a fraud. You need to hear that this is this is what it means to be the people of God, of, of, to be a source of life, a source of light, and a source of life at great cost to ourselves. Now, look here. If you see down further, uh, further down in um, in verse um, verse six, it says that this woman fled into the wilderness. And to, 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 to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And the, the, the idea here is that this, 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 this woman is living in a situation, God's people are living in a situation that is often very desperate. This woman, what is she doing in verse 6? She's fleeing. It's like she's losing. It's like she's being defeated. There's a sense of desperation. Often our situations are desperate. The people of God, God puts them in, as we're going to see, God puts them in desperate, difficult situations. So her situation is desperate. She flees. It's difficult. Where does she flee to? The desert. Often our situations feel so desolate, so lonely, so difficult. And yet what it's n- none of it is an accident. Her situation is desperate. It's difficult, and yet it is divinely designed. Do you see that? That she flees to a place in the wilderness, in the desert, prepared for her by God. The situations that God's people find themselves in are divinely designed. Yes, they are desperate. Yes, they are difficult. But they are divinely designed. But here's the thing. They are not indefinite. This is so beautiful, this this 1,260 days this is a way of speaking of a specificity. There is a limited time to our struggle. There is a limited time to our suffering. It is not the last word. It is not the final word. It is not indefinite. You know, Sarah, uh, my wife Sarah and, and our twins are, are, are reading, um, are currently reading a book called The Hiding Place. And it's by Corey Ten Boom. And I, I won't take the time to tell the story, but if you are unfamiliar with the story, even if you are, if you've read it once, I want to encourage you to make this one of your summer reads. In fact, I would suggest that you read it aloud as a family. I mean, it's a very, pro- I mean, it is an amazing story. And your kids, were, it, the conversations that we have had in the Clark household over the dinner table recently have been beautiful. And I'll tell you what, in the midst of this crisis, that book will put things, it'll put a few things in perspective as we see a woman, as a family of Christians living out their lives in, uh, in the midst of uh, the, the, the Nazi regime. It is powerful. Speaking of a life-giving, uh, light-bearing, light-giving uh, a source, that is, uh, that is the story of Corrie Ten Boom. So uh, not only is this, this woman identified as light-bearing and as life-giving, specifically, she is giving life to an everlasting Lord. Who is this particular child? We see that in verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who, there's a, there's a quotation, this is very typical of Revelation, it simply lifts, uh, or, or, if you will, copies and paste language from the Old Testament and just uses it. And so this this phrase, and getting your NIV, it will it should be in uh, in quotes. It says this child will quote will will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and that's a quote taken from Psalm two. And it speaks of this child as as the long anticipated Messiah, the the divine agent by which God, the Creator, the Father, will overtake or retake his world, bringing life and blessing to a world ruled by darkness and death. So again, this, this community, this woman, uh, is, a, is a community of those who are life givers, who end up giving life to the one who is an everlasting Lord, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter and bring justice in the midst of oppression and darkness. So on the one side of this, of this struggle is, this, uh, is life, the life-givers, a life-giving community. There's a war between the life and a liar. That's what we see in the next few verses here, verse 3. And it, says, it speaks of one who is a deceiver one who is pretending to, to have divine power, and yet who destroys, and who is, and we find his, his, actually, his plans are actually derailed. Look here in verse 3, it says, Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. And as I mentioned last week, uh, a dragon or a serpent, a reptile, is symbolic of all that is deceptive. All that is, as it, when a snake, as it, it rises, as it slithers, you can never know where it's really going. And this the idea here, is that there is this, this dark power that emerges that is anti-life, that is anti-divine order, and wants to do nothing but sow chaos and division. And it does so by, through lies. And again, it's portrayed here as having... Um, a pretense of full power and authority. It claims to have the seven heads, the seven or ten ten horns are a way of saying, hey, I have got all complete control, complete headship, complete authority, and it's a way of, of pretending to be God, pretending to be that final authority, to pretending to have a legitimacy that it doesn't. And of course, it, it wages war, verse 4, wages war. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them down to the earth, It's waging war on the people of God. God's people are being uh, persecuted or being uh, rejected by, uh, by this, um, this uh, being, this, this evil one. And, but of course, its purposes are thwarted. We see that in verse 4. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth in order to devour it. And then verse uh, verse five, it says, "And her child was snatched up to God and to His throne." And so we're seeing this picture, this war in which there's a liar, a deceiver, and uh, he is—he in fact is—he um, in fact is derailed in the sense that he, he he almost devours a child, but his his purposes are derailed. Now I want you to note something in this war. Have you noticed so far? We've got a woman. Who is a source of life, and we have a dragon, who is a source of lies. It makes you wonder. Okay, so we talked about the Christian community. We've we've seen the evil one. But where are the non-Christians in this in this conflict? Where are they? And this is right. This is so important. I want you to hear this, and it bears directly as on on this the question of news media. They're not in it. Non-Christians are not in this war. Listen to this. They are non-combatants. Now later we'll see in chapter 13 that they become pawns of the dragon. but That's all they are. They're, they're pawns. I'm going to ask you, who have you made the enemy? I am so quick to draw the battle lines in the wrong places Sometimes I'll make a family member my enemy, whether it's immediate or extended family. Sometimes I'll make a political party the enemy. Sometimes I'll make a generation the enemy. Oh, you know, those millennials or something like that. I am so good at just dismissing entire groups of persons In certain ways, and making them the enemy. And we're seeing it in this war that those who do not who are not part of the people, or at least not yet part of the people of God, they are in no way the enemy. So we see here again, this is a war between life and lies. So he is a liar and he is a liar. Verse verses seven through nine, he's a liar who will lose. Then it says, look at it says, verse 7. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. He was, But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled down to the earth and his angels with him. Again, so this is a war. But I want you to see this is very important. It is a war of truth. It is a war of testimony. It is a war of guilt and innocence. It's a war that takes place, really, in a courtroom. Now, why do I say that? Well, look at the description in verse 9 of, of, the, of the dragon. It says, the great dra- dragon was hurled down, and it describes him, this litany, this ancient serpent. Of course, we've already learned that sap- serpents are what? They're about deception, the distortion of truth. Then it's called the devil. Of course, the devil, um, diabolos in Greek means accuser. I'm sorry, it's not accuser. Well, not so much accuser. It's one who slanders. One who is engaging in uh, a misrepresentation of another person's character. It's a quasi-legal term. So do you see that the legal nature, the underlying legal nature of what's going on here? So he's called the devil, and the ancient serpent, which has to do with deception. It's a distortion of truth. He's called the devil, which has to do with slander. And then he's called Satan, which is simply the hasatan, is a, is a loan word from Hebrew. And it literally means the accuser. And then it says he leads the whole world astray. That is to say he deceives the whole world. So this whole war is not some sort of physical or you know, some sort of physical or uh, metaphysical battle between uh, sort of spiritual beings. necessarily. it's actually a. We're in heaven. Heaven is the the the, the courtroom of God. It's where God reigns on his throne, and there is a legal battle going on. And the evil one has has lost that battle. Now, just just who who is uh, Michael? Uh, in verse 7. Who is this angel? Well, there's a lot we don't know. He's a very mysterious figure in some ways. He, it seems, though, that he is, in a sense, if he, he is, if you will, the chief counsel for the defense. That is to say, he's the chief counsel for God's people. If you look ahead in verse 10, the evil one is described as the accuser of the brothers and sisters, who accuses them before God or before our God night and day. And it seems that Michael is, again, as you will, the, the chief counsel for the defense. And more important than who Michael is, is his actual name. In Hebrew, uh, Michael or Mika'el, me Mi means who, it's, a, it's actually the, 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 word, the name Michael is actually a, a question. Me is who, ka is like, and then el, of course, is the, the Hebrew name for God. Who is like God? See, Michael is an angel. His legal case is rooted in the very character of God, specifically God's holiness. Michael fights. the, 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 The basis of his whole legal argument is on God's character. Listen to this. This is key. If you don't remember anything else today, remember this. God's holiness, God's holiness is our greatest hope is the greatest hope of God's people. His holiness speaks of how he is so shrewd that he is able to find a way that you and I who are as guilty as sin, you and I who in every way deserve to be condemned, he is so shrewd that he can find a way that you and I will walk straight free. You and I can walk just innocent, that we can be actually in in, in the courtroom of God, that you and I can be pronounced innocent. Isn't that amazing? That's shrewdness. That is God's holiness. And where does God reveal that shrewdness? He tells us it's in the lamb. It's in the lamb. See, in the war between life and lies, it's won by the lamb's blood. The lamb, look at in Look in verse 10, he says, then I heard a a voice in heaven say, this beautiful, again, a voice in heaven means a final declarative statement. And it says, and it speaks of this victory. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God night and day, day and night has been hurled down. And of course, he loses for two reasons. First, the blood of the lamb. See, Satan's case includes all of our sin. Just think about that. Satan takes our sin, the sins of God's people, the sins of the world, and he presents, that's all the evidence, his Satan's case includes all of our sins, but it omits or it excludes Jesus' sinless sacrifice. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb, the saints, the people of God triumphed over the evil one, the accuser of the brethren, by the blood of the lamb. Isn't that beautiful? Christian, I want you to hear something this morning. You are dearly loved by the lamb. He laid down his life for you perfectly innocent, totally vulnerable, very simple, unadorned, a nobody, laying down his life for you and for me. You know, Jesus' life was, was there was no one who lived a life more unfair than Jesus's, more, more suffering, more struggle. And why did he do that? I want you to hear this morning, he did it for you. You know, some of you, you may need to be, um, you may need to hear Clara's uh, song again and again and again. That offeratory song is, is simply beautiful. Listen to it every day this week. Above all else, right? Above all. Such a beautiful word. In fact, this is how Revelation begins. Listen to these words. This is how we're introduced to Jesus in the book of Revelation. It says, it's a doxology. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Isn't that beautiful? To him who loves us the saints triumph over the evil one the accuser who accuses us night and day who reminds us of all of our all that we've done wrong all of our sins all of our failures all of our repeated patterns of sin that we fall back into again and again he uh, the, the, it is the blood of the lamb that overcomes all of that that washes it all away so how do they how how does the evil one lose He loses for two reasons. First, he loses by the blood of the Lamb. But second, there's something very important. He loses because of the lives of believers. Listen to these astonishing words in verse 11. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. These are some of my most beautiful words in the New Testament. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. See, these, these, these believers, have, having seen the love of the lamb, having seen the way that he was just so willing to go to the slaughter, so to be such a victim, to, be, to be just commit himself, and to be so misunderstood, so hated, so reviled, they were willing to follow him into that rejection, willing to follow him into that sacrificial, costly love. Christian, what does your life say about you? What do you want your life to say about you? How do you use your words? How do you use your wallet? How do you use your time? Those who know you best, what would they say about you? Brothers and sisters, our lives really matter. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Let me ask you, would you die for Jesus Christ? Would you, will, would, would you be willing to be martyred? Let me ask you, let me take a step back. Are you even willing to, to own his name in public? In the classroom, are you willing to say, I am a Christian? I'm a follower of Jesus. I follow the one who is love, who is peace, who is wisdom, who is hope. I follow the most influential figure in human history. Would you be willing to own him in the classroom or at work? Would you be willing to die for our Lord Jesus Christ? See, the evil one is overcome. His lies are overcome in the world when Christians live lives of love then the war between life and lies is won by the lamb's blood and by the lives of believers so the lamb has won the war and this calls us to do what what are we supposed to do look at verse 11 The the fact that the Lamb has truly won the war. This calls us first and foremost to rejoice. Look at that in verse 11. 11, It's so beautiful. Uh, Sorry, not verse 11, verse 12. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. We are to rejoice. We are to be a people who know that the evil one will will not have the last word, that his argument has failed that we are innocent, that we are blameless, that we will stand before God as those who cannot be condemned. We are to rejoice as those who belong to heaven. But we also, not only are we to rejoice, we are to be ready. Look at the, look at the, last, the, last part, the second half of verse 12. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows his time is short. Listen to this. All that we've done today is to set the stage for what comes next, what we'll we'll talk about next week. Namely, John's powerful description of how the evil one, having been defeated in in heaven, how he comes down and how he wages war against God's people. Because the thing is, it's going to have a lot to do with the cultural institutions of our day. Institutions like government. Institutions like the media. So stay tuned. This is where all this is going. We're saying, okay, now we've, we've seen the, the deeper, hidden conflict. And now we can actually talk about our culture and about the various institutions of power in our culture in a way that is informed by this, this deeper, hidden, cosmic conflict. So again... Stay tuned for until next week. Uh, but as I do, let me, let me close with a few questions. How do you see God's people? Do you see God's people, God, the church of Jesus Christ, Good Shepherd and the church universal, do you see her as a woman clothed with the sun? As a woman that has at her feet the, 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 the 12 star, the moon and the 12 stars, as a light-bearing, life-giving presence? Do you see her as one who is ready to suffer, to give life? Do you see her as one who offers a maternal love to all? Because that's who the Church of Jesus Christ is and has been many times. She has failed grossly terribly at times. And it makes us wonder, am I, am, do, does, does our church depict that, that, that wonderful portrait? Does it, do we actually depict that maternal, sacrificial, costly love? How do you see God's people? Next, let me ask you, do you complain about being in a desert? Remember how the woman, she flees to a wilderness, she flees to the desert where there's difficulty, there's hardship, And yet there's provision. There's divine provision. And finally, let me close with this. Who is the enemy? We all know that there's a conflict. The question is, who's the enemy? Where are you drawing the the, the battle lines and why? Why? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we, uh, we would love these symbols as we come to grasp their meaning. They are just so powerful. Lord, I pray that you would imprint them upon our hearts in a beautiful way, a powerful way, a lasting way, that we would be moved, that we would be wooed, Father, by their imagery, that we would be warned by their imagery, that, Father, that we would walk in a way that is beautiful, that we would follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you that what, for what you were willing to do for your enemies. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have given us not only an, an atonement, not only a, a finished act, but you've given us a, a path to follow. Help us to follow in your footsteps. Unite us. Make a good shepherd uh, like that woman, a light-bearing, life-giving uh, um, source of beauty, O oh, Lord God, I pray, send your spirit, change us into the likeness of Christ. We pray in his name, amen. amen.